Today I'll be reading from Psalm 91, from the ESV, and I'll be reading the whole thing. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but, I will, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard in all your ways. On their hands he, they will bear you up, lest you strike the, your foot against the stone, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he who holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him, because he knows my name. He, when he calls me, I will answer him, I will be with him in his trouble, I will restore him and honor him with long life, and I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. One of the great scenes in The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings series are the times when they reach the beautiful and the peaceful Rivendell, ruled by the elves. Rivendell is a place of refuge for many travelers. Bilbo describes it as a perfect house. Whether you like food or sleep, or storytelling, or singing, or just sitting and thinking, or a pleasant mixture of them all. At one point, Frodo and his hobbit companions, they meet there as they bring them the ring. It's a place for singing and storytelling, but other times people would come along just to think and to ponder. And it was said to be a place of peace and of learning. It was just the place for this company, for the fellowship of the ring. It's what they needed after a long and a difficult journey and to restore them for the journey that was ahead. You see, J.R. Tolkien was honing in on a place that we all desire. It's a place we desire to be from time to time. When we're beaten down, when we're discouraged, when we're wearied, and when we're worried about our circumstances, we look for refuge. We look for a place that stands outside of the pressure so that we can forge ahead again soon. Tanya and I have spent much times at such places throughout our journey, and it's been significant. We even spent a weekend at a place called Rivendell House during a difficult season. And this morning you may be longing for such a place. With today being Mother's Day, I thought it would be a good passage to ponder, as it can give hope and healing to weary moms. There's never an end to the demands to the amount of things to catch up on, to the jobs that never cease, and at times it feels as though we ask the question, am I equipped for this? Do I have what it takes? Will my strength last? I remember what it was to be sleep deprived, or especially for Tanya, what it was like for her to be sleep deprived, and how difficult that can make life when the kids are young. Sometimes as Something as simple as not getting enough sleep can just throw everything out of whack, your mind and everything, and it's hard to think straight even. It's hard to concentrate. And it can make the daily challenges of life being a mom exponentially more difficult when sleep isn't there. 
I remember the week that Cale was born. He was born on a Tuesday, and it was a full week of people coming through the house and meeting them and greeting us, and we were at church that first Sunday. And then we went to my parents' house that evening, and it was a, a busy week on that first child being born, and I remember Tanya spending much of that evening crying in the back room. We didn't know that that was normal, and that it's something that's experienced by many moms. You know, you feel vulnerable and a little scared, and the wild hormone ride that you're on can really take its toll. And it's not only moms. You know, it's all of us who feel this way from one time or another. Maybe not to that extent, but maybe in different ways. And that feeling of needing just some rest and some refuge. We wonder at times how we will stand up under the pressure, the stress, and the attacks. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel the need for rest, for a steady presence in your life. Well, that's precisely what this passage is about. And it gives us the definition of the kind of refuge that we need and the kind of refuge that we are given. This passage, I think, will serve as an encouragement to pray deeply, to drive your roots down into your relationship with God as the one who is able to provide that refuge and to provide that strength in moving forward. So this morning, we're going to look at the promise of refuge and rest, the description of that promise, and the means to it as well. Psalm 91. The promise of refuge. Now, if you look at the beginning verses of this passage, you will see the hanger on which these promises hang. You see, the psalmist begins by describing the person who dwells in the shelter of the Most High and who abides in his shadow. And it's a deeply personal psalm as you read through it. I mean, certainly this was a psalm for the community as a whole, but it's, it's intentionally laid out as though it uses the words, per, the personal words within it. It uses the word he over and over again. And of course, you can translate this as being he or she, the one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. It's very personal. It's for you as a child of God, as one of his children, a promise for you. The psalmist begins by describing that kind of person who dwells in this shelter of the Most High, who abides under his shadow. And we'll come back to that later, but what we see laid out next is that there are some serious benefits from taking this to heart. So these verses at the beginning of this chapter, they tell us what our responsibility is. What are we to do? We are to dwell in him. We are to abide in his shadow, it says. We are to proclaim to the Lord that he is my refuge and my fortress. He is the God in whom I trust. Well, what happens when I do that? Who is this promise? What is this promise that is given for the one who is able to do those things? It says that he will deliver you. He'll deliver you from attacks. He'll deliver you from sickness. He will cover you. Here it says that he will cover us with the pinions under his wings that we will take refuge under that shelter. A mother bird's wings provide shelter from the heat, a covering from the rain, protection from enemies. All of these various things that happen when a mother bird protects her children. It's the safest place for her young ones to be. This is a powerful metaphor that is repeated actually throughout the Psalms and even Jesus picked up on it later on uh, in the New Testament. It, presented, it projects strength and tenderness and love all combined together. Psalm 37, 57, 61, they all pick up on this same theme. It's a promise that is given over and over again in God's word. And now most meta metaphors that 
we are used to hearing about God, they're obviously more in the masculine form, like king and father. And sometimes those can have a distant connotation to us today. But God is not distant, and he is not remote. A good father and a good king, like God designed them, is able to be referred to as this protective bird. This is the Lord. These images of protection and refuge are very real for the one who dwells and who abides under his care. Now, don't get it wrong. When you read this, it doesn't mean that harm will never come to you. It doesn't mean that you're protected from everything that's going to happen so that it'll never affect you. It doesn't mean that there will not be heartache. It doesn't mean that you won't still have to endure the enemy and the attacks. There will come a time when that is the case, but for now we stand under the protection of the Most High. There will come a time when all of that will be alleviated, is what I mean when I say that. But for now we stand under the protection of the Most High, and He shelters us from being destroyed. John Piper uses this illustration somewhere, and I can't remember exactly where I heard it. But he likens this protection of God to like hiking a mountain. And off in a distance, you can see the clouds stirring and a storm is quickly approaching as you stand there vulnerable on the side of this mountain. We know how quickly those storms can blow in. And so you start to look around and you start to wonder, where am I going to find protection? I feel so vulnerable. And as the storm hits, you suddenly find a little place you tuck yourself away into a rocky crevice that covers you, the cleft of a rock. And the storm hits, and it rages, and it blows, and it pours down, but you are safe. That storm can never defeat the tremendous strength of that mountain that you've tucked yourself into. And so while you are still no doubt terrified, a little wet, windblown, you are ultimately safe. It's not comfortable, it's not easy, but you also have the confidence that that storm can never defeat your shelter. It's rock, it's a mountain. No storm can defeat that. And this is what we are being told here. This is the promise that you can give and that you can rely upon. There is a promise of refuge for those who trust in the Lord Most High. Well, what is it? What is the description of this? Okay, so it says that we will not experience the violence that is around us. In verse 5 and 7, it says that. It says you will not experience the disease of verse 6. No evil or harm will overcome you, it says in verse 10. And verse 12 says that we won't even stub our toe. But once again, this doesn't mean that hard things don't still happen. But Satan wants you to read it that way. He wants you to interpret it that way, that if you trust in the Lord, nothing bad will ever come your way. Now, why would I say that? It's quite well known, and even Shakespeare was actually quoted as saying that even Satan can cite scriptures for his purpose. That's from the play The Merchant of Venice, and the only reason I know that is because I've seen the movie, not because I read the book. <laughs> oh, Annika read it, thread through it in, uh, in English this last year, though. But it is true. Satan can cite scripture for his past purposes if he wants to. And in one place, this actually happens. In Luke chapter 4, Satan is trying to derail Jesus as he tempts him in the wilderness. And Satan quotes verse 11 of our passage that we read this morning. And it says he, that he took him to Jerusalem. You'll remember the story when, when Satan brings Jesus into the wilderness in his temptation. And he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and here he quotes Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
You see, the temptation that Satan was bringing before Jesus here was that by doing this, by throwing himself off the temple and having angels come to help him, he would win a great following. It would be an easy way for him to win all of these people. It would be an easy way to gain followers. You see, Satan is strategic. He knows that if you believe this, this idea that nothing bad will ever happen to you if you're a Christian, if you abide in God and if you dwell in him, he knows that if you believe that, you will eventually become disappointed. You will pull back from God and you will never know his promise if you read it that way. Well, then how do we read this correctly? I think a good thing to do would be to consider other stories from Scripture. We could go to so many. You could think of Job would be one we would naturally go to. But consider Joseph. You know, his story starts with his father Jacob who favors him above all the other children. And when you're favored above all of your siblings, you know how deadly that can be. And as a result, Joseph becomes cruel, he becomes entitled, he becomes spoiled and arrogant. And when you become like that, how do you think your siblings react to you? It's not good. You know, the brothers become murderous, they become bitter and hard. They sell him into slavery and he ends up in a prison cell for decades. Things go wrong and for years there are no answers. He sits in a cell year after year, but in the end, if that didn't happen... If all of that didn't happen and all of these things didn't happen to them, well, first of all, he would never would have become the man that he became. He never would have become that great man. His brothers, secondly, would never have become humbled in that way. And multitudes of people would have starved as a result. All of this happened because of disaster. Because God was doing something significant in the midst of all of it. He was protecting him. He was sheltering him under his wings in the midst of his heartache. And so if we read Psalm 91 in a superficial way, we will end up in disappointment. We will say, this shouldn't be happening to me. I don't deserve this. This isn't what was promised. And ultimately, we get to this point of abandoning faith. But God is saying, I'm looking after what is most important. So trust in me. I'm looking after you. Trust in me. Even though trials and persecution and loss, even though they come your way, I am there, and I am this rock of refuge. Because not a hair on your head will be destroyed if you do this, he says. This isn't easy, but it's worth it. Clinging to me, abiding in me, dwelling with me, it's worth it. So then you must trust God in trouble so that you can be a person who can handle trouble. Trusting God in the midst of it. Not easy. But if we do, what does it say? The promises will be for the one who is able to do this. It says, first of all, the idea of dwelling. You'll be able to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. When you trust in Him, He will be your dwelling place. You will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Abiding in Him. When you stay, remain, when you remain, when you're connected with Him, you will abide with Him together, side by side with the Lord God. And that takes us right to John 15, that whole idea of abiding. It brings us to John 15, where we are called to abide in me, Jesus says. For the one who abides in me will bear much fruit. Third, he becomes our refuge and our fortress, we are told. You see, I think that has elements of defense and offense. Because a refuge is a place of rest and renewal, as we talked earlier. And a fortress is also a place of protection as well. But it's a place where we launch out from. It's kind of like that Rivendale house where you come and you, you become restored, but it's a place where you move on to what's next. So there's an offense and there's a defense of, I think, uh, element to that. He becomes our refuge and he becomes our fortress to be able to move out. 
We're also told that we'll be delivered from the snare of the enemy. See, the enemy, that's in verse 3. The enemy is the one who is able to ultimately destroy, but we will be protected from that when the Lord is our refuge. No fear. Fear will be taken away from you, verse 5. Even though you're under attack, that ultimate fear, so while you may be scared or worried, the ultimate fear that has been talking about here will be taken from you. Upheld by the angels. You see, verse 11 says that God will command his angels to guard you. And this is an incredible promise. These angels will hold you up when you can't hold yourself up. I mean, isn't this amazing? We're not going to get into a whole theology of angels this morning, but this is the promise that we have been given, that God does send his ministering agents to us for our good and for our protection. It's an incredible thing that we have been given. And ultimately, all of this culminates in verse 16, that you will gain eternal life and experience God's salvation forever. Now, that's quite a list of promises. And in whatever situation you find yourself in today, these promises are available to you. They're not distant promises. They're not just for a few. They are for all who would find their dwelling place in the Lord Most High. Well, how do they become yours? How is it then that we attain this? You see, there's only a few things that we are called to do here. There's a lot of promises in this passage, but very few things that we are asked to do. And as you read through this passage, you will see, just like I pointed out, that there are so many promises. It's a long list that keeps on going and getting repeated, but the list of the things that we are called to do in order to receive these promises is very short. In fact, I only see about three. But before I show them to you, it kind of gets encapsulated by something that happened to me when I was about 11 or 12, and I probably have mentioned this before, but uh, when I was about 11 or 12, our buddies and I, we always used to go out, we used to play football in our school football field, almost almost every day and all on the weekends. And that year, in particular for Christmas, I got the most special football. It was the official football of the CFL. I mean, this was like a serious gift. In those days, I don't know what they are today, but it was called the Spalding J5V. And it was, you know, the best kind of leather that you can imagine. I mean, it was very special. So for a young kid, like I treasured this thing. I cradled it, I took it to bed with me. It was like a baby. And one day we went out and, we were, and I let my buddies use it when we were playing football one day. And as we were playing, we we're having a great game together. And all of a sudden, this older kid comes along who was uh, from the high school. And he comes and he disrupts our game. He steals my football and he bikes off into the distance. We're yelling after him, but to no avail. And it was gone. Well, I mean, it was a small community. We knew who this guy was, but we didn't know what to do. So that day, after, after uh, we kind of like talked about what we were going to do for a while, I went home and I talked to my mom and dad and I said, you know, this, this is what happened. You know, is there anything that you can do about this? And my dad just said, all right, well, we know who it is. You know where he lives? So, yeah, okay, well, let's get in the vehicle. We'll go down there and I'll take you down there and I'll go to their door and I'll ask for it back. And there was a certain amount of comfort in that. And as we got into the vehicle, my dad and I, we drove on down the street and I was sitting there, and I don't think a lot of things were, were said. I don't think we had a long conversation or anything like that. But there was a certain confidence that I had just sitting in that seat, knowing that my dad was beside me, that he had this under control, and that he was able to defeat this enemy. And so as we drove there, we stopped in front of the house, and he went up to his door, and he rang the doorbell, and uh, I, didn't, I was still sitting in the vehicle. I didn't even get out of the vehicle. I didn't really have to do anything other than to just sit there. And he got out of the vehicle and he went and rang the doorbell and asked for the football back and he sheepishly gave the ball back to my dad, came back to the vehicle and we, dro and we drove home. Nothing particularly heroic. 
There was nothing really all that heroic in what my dad did. In fact, it was very ordinary. It was a very fatherly thing to do. But yet it provided me with this great comfort and security. I didn't have to do a whole lot. I called out to him. I trusted in him. And then I simply abided with him as we went. And in doing that, there was a great deal of confidence that I had and a great deal of comfort and peace in the midst of that situation. Now, that football's still in my office, actually. And so if you've been in my office, you've seen it sitting on my shelf. I still have it with me. I was going to bring it in here this morning, actually. But it's there if you want to come by and, and uh, I'll throw it to you and see if you can catch it still. But let me assure you that the relationship that you have with the God most high is no less real than that. It's no less real than that. You have that same protection with the Lord Most High. And so what do we do? You know, how do we get this? And how do we know this shelter, protection, a calmness, and the peace in the midst of our difficulties? Well, just as we've already said, you call out to Him, you trust in Him, and you abide in Him. What do these things mean? In verse 1, this is the first thing that we are called to do, simply to dwell and to abide. And this is what we must do. What will this mean for you to do this? What does it look like for you to abide in Him, to dwell with Him? At its root level, it means that you are always near Him. You don't compartmentalize your life. You don't say, God, hands off this area of my life. That's mine. Because we can do that, right? We say, this is for me. This is for God sometimes. We let Him in certain parts of our life, but not in others. But that's not how it should be. Everything has to be open to Him. When we abide with the Lord, it is an all-in commitment. It's all of who we are, all of our mind and our heart and our spirit, everything together with the Lord, all in, buying in 100%. Everything is open to Him, constantly dwelling with Him. He is with you everywhere you go and in everything you do. You read His Word daily and you obey it. We need to be daily in God's word or we often find ourselves drifting. And it's a slow drift. But when we fail to make this a discipline, we suddenly find ourselves in this place that we didn't intend on ending up. How did we get here when we drift? And when we do this, we end up knowing his name. When we dwell with him, when we abide with God, we know him intimately. We know his name. We know this name that no one else knows. You see, the Jewish people had a name for God that was unique to him. It was unique to them as a people, and we sang about it this morning. It's Yahweh, the name that they didn't even say out loud. It was too holy, but they knew him so intimately that they could use this name with God. It was unique to them and marked them as knowing God intimately. He protects those who knows his name. Do you know him as Yahweh, and are you dwelling and are you abiding in him? This is what we must do to find that shelter, that refuge, and that comfort. Trust, verse 2 talks about the trust that we place in Him as well. When you know the name of God and when you abide with Him, you trust in Him. You believe that He is able to do what He said. You believe in His promises. This is trust. And we call out to Him. Verse 15. When we call to Him, He will answer. Calling declares trust. We don't call out to someone that we don't think is going to help. We call to those who will help us in our time of need. We don't call on things or people that we do not trust. Problems, our problem is that we so often though trust in other things other than Him. Will you call out to God, to Yahweh, the one you know intimately? This is all that we are asked to do and when we do these things we are promised this level of protection that this verse speaks of. Well, the refuge of the Bible, we, 
We almost have it here. Let's look at these last three verses of this passage again. Verse 14 to 16. It says, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him, and I will be with him in trouble. So, okay, so notice it says here, I, it doesn't stop at I will be with him. It says I will be with him in trouble, the trouble that we find ourselves in. That's how we know we are reading this rightly. I will be with him in the trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You see, that line points us forward. It points us to the gospel to Jesus. How will God be with us in trouble? Well, Jesus should have been exempt from trouble. I mean, he was perfect, right? And if there was ever anyone who should have led a trouble-free life, it would be him. And obviously, if the prosperity gospel is true, Jesus should have been the most prosperous person who has ever walked the earth. But you know what? He experienced every kind of trouble that we read about in this passage. So then our first response when we hit trouble is crying out to the Lord in our prayers. You know, Lord, you know what it's like to walk through this trouble. There's nothing that I am going through that you do not know, that you have not experienced to an even greater extent than what I am experiencing. You know worse than I do. But this doesn't just point only to incarnation, but also to substitution. You see, this picture of a mother bird it conveys three things. We started out by saying it conveys protection, it conveys love and tenderness, and it also conveys substitution. You see, a mother bird spreads her wings over her chicks to protect them from the rain. And so she gets wet from the sun, so she gets hot. And from predators, she puts her life on the line, literally. Now, there's only one place in the Bible where Jesus identifies with a mother bird, and it's in the Gospels. And it's when he's riding into Jerusalem in Matthew 23, and it's also in Luke 13. And he's talking about judgment and that Jerusalem is going to be judged for their sins and their wrongdoing. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. Now, it sounds very sweet, right? Jesus is identifying. But it's really the context that matters here. He's saying that judgment is coming down, and it's coming down on them in particular. And he's saying, if you believed in me, I would cover you and protect you, and I would take the judgment on your behalf. And he will do this. When Jesus was on the cross, he looked down on the mockers, his betrayers, and he stayed. He defied Satan's false promises of rescue, and he stayed. He took the judgment that we deserved. This is the context of Psalm 91. And therefore, when we suffer, we can look to Jesus and we can say, Jesus, if you can suffer like that, then I can suffer right now with patience, with the endurance that Jesus talked about in Luke 21, 19, that through the patient endurance and suffering, you will gain your soul. So how do you get there? How do you get to that place? Well, you go right back to the beginning of Psalm 91. It is the one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, who abides in the shadow of the Almighty. Jesus fleshes this out in John 15, 4, when he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, 
He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. This is why we focus on prayer, and this is why we lift up God's word, because this is where our salvation is found. This is where our refuge is found in these things. We want to lift up biblical truth that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, and with him, there is nothing that you cannot stand up underneath. Abiding with him means that you will continue in a daily personal relationship with Jesus that is characterized by trust, by prayer, and by obedience and joy. When you do that, you will, with patient endurance, gain your life, your very soul. You will triumph through all things, and not only that, but God becomes your refuge, your strength, and your rest. Let's pray together as we thank Him for that. Father God, we are just so grateful for these promises that we have here in Your Word this morning. And, and I pray that for those who are in need of that today, those who are weary and in need of rest and refuge and strength, Lord, You promise to be that for us. And all You call us to do is just to abide in You, to remain in You. And that through that, you will protect us. As a mother bird protects its young, you will cover us with your wings and you will protect us from the heat, from the storms, and from the predators. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. May we find our ultimate hope and rescue in you. And so, Lord, for those who are going through times like that this morning, we pray for an endurance, for patient endurance for them, Lord. That they wouldn't drift away and pull back, but that they would cling all the more closely. And in our clinging to you, Lord, that we would find the refuge and the rest that we are looking for. So thank you that as this passage promises that when we hold you fast, that you hold us fast. And that is a tight grasp that we will never fall from. And so we thank you that we have the ultimate salvation and a long life that will satisfy, as this passage tells us, through Jesus Christ. Because you have done this on our behalf. You took the punishment you walked through all of these troubles and all of these strifes so that we can faithfully as well. Give us strength for that together today in this journey, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.